Hello, I'm Matthew Chalmers. And I'm Stephanie Stapleton. And this is the Southwest Londoner podcast. Love Island is the most watched digital programme of the year and has a peak audience around 3.3 million viewers. But, you know, it divides a lot of people. Is Love Island just this vacuous nonsense or is the love and the relationships shown on the show reflective of deeper cultural trends? How deep do these trends go is the question we're going to be asking today. And we're going to be looking back into our history and seeing if courtship um, and relationships, how these things have changed over an extended period of time. Um, behind the chiseled abs and bucks breasts and uh, sun-kissed behinds of Love Island, is there perhaps deeper trends at play? And are some of these customs and rituals um, or similar customs and rituals visible in earlier periods such as the medieval or Victorian times? We know that people have always been very interested in other people's dating lives, love lives and various rituals and we want to dig further into that and see how the characters that we're either, depending on how much you like Love Island, have grown very attached to or completely repulsed by, but we want to see how those people fare against others that have been looking for love through the sands of time. And to do this, uh, we have been joined by Tanya O'Donnell, who's the author of A History of Courtship, 800 Years of Seduction Techniques. And she will hopefully help us to better understand some of the interesting rituals that we see on TV today and put them into context by examining how it's evolved from medieval Britain to the Victorian times and to the modern age. And hopefully draw some parallels and perhaps even if we're lucky, give us some much needed dating advice. Isn't that right, Matt? Right. Wait, what are you trying to say? because you know when you're talking about the history of dating that there are so many rituals they have on the show that actually we do we have over time um, you know created those rituals the beautifying aspects the fact that all the girls get together and help the you know each other get dressed when they're going out on a date or going to the hideaway or you know all of that sort of stuff and then the boys in a very ritualized sense bringing coffees to the girls that they're coupled with in the mornings you know that sort of thing is is quite you you would have a historical precedent for it like love tokens that would have been given um throughout history for when people were courting so that's pretty you know i can see where the uh where the interest would lie and i can see why you'd want to do a podcast on the subject are there any stark differences you think between the sort of courtship if we can call it that, that we see on Love Island and sort of historical periods, so to speak, like what is unique about Love Island and our modern period of dating in general, I suppose? Well, I mean, I think the big thing is if you take a look historically at the way people have um, dated or used sex, the uh, like one's um, uh, class and wealth has been a really big aspect of how you know but basically in terms of who would even be on your dance card is based around 
the, the circles you would move in. Whereas I think there is a kind of democratizing aspect of modern dating whereby you could meet anyone from anywhere and you know any different circle i think people now probably get together more on shared values than they do as much as they did before on class and wealth in that way i i wouldn't say it's completely away because we are quite a class-driven society in, in in the uk especially but it's certainly that way I, I i what i really find surprising as a newbie to love island is how little how heteronormative it is and there's not you know it's always there's like one kind of guy and one kind of girl i'm not really seeing an awful lot of difference in terms of those values and whether it's you know okay we're going to put a bunch of hot people together and it's all just going to be talking about you know sex and dating and things and it's all going to be sort of quite comparable all their sort of terms of reference are quite similar and their ways of being are quite similar and i i didn't know about the term turkey teeth so i've googled it and for the sake of i'm sure your listeners are much more savvy than i am it's sort of you know someone who's had that very white very straight um teeth done on the cheap in turkey which is apparently it's a country known for that sort of so there are a lot of terms of the, you know, that are, are quite similar and things like that. And I, I've started using, I mean, I've, you know, I said to my husband, that was very muggy of you. <laughs> so I've started using terms from Love Island in, in real life. So but yeah. you were just talking about how kind of heteronormative it all seems. And I completely agree with that as well. And I was just thinking, or wondering whether during your sort of research you found has it always been really heteronormative data? I mean, obviously, no, it hasn't. Okay, not at all, not at all. Sorry, I realise for a podcast, shaking my head is not going to, <laughs> it's not going to help. <laughs> you know, it hasn't been at all. You have a lot of examples throughout history of, you know, not. Um, admittedly in terms of society because again we come back to this thing of wealth and inheritance and things like that so societies throughout the world have been you know have have had that kind of society structure where you where you have the heteronormative and you have the eldest son who uh, uh, inherits and things like that but there have always been people outside the main uh, sort of thrust of that societal setup and um, you, you know, you have you have tribes around the world where the women have more than one husband, and it's sort of you know that's the setup for their particular society. So I think one of the dangers that we have is we really, when we think about society and we think about history, we tend to think about people in Regency clothes, and it's all about you know Britain or USA. Um, but if you take the whole gamut of the way that relationships have panned out throughout the world. Um, you know, it, it, within India, you, if you take a look at the acceptance of within society of uh, people who are non-binary, you know, that's, it can be, you, you know, within the Indian subcontinent, it, I think last year, uh, one of the human rights um, groups said it was the most uh, terrible place for a woman to be because of violence against women. And yet you have eunuchs who have been there for forever like forever as part of the society and, and accepted as um a part of society not you know sort of killed on the streets in the way you would in other societies so 
whether that's, I mean, I don't, I don't feel qualified enough to talk enough about those subjects, but I would say that the history of our sexuality goes back to our prehistory, like our development, our evolution is not this binary heteronormative thing that we have imposed and said that this is the way that society is it just hasn't been but there's just no evidence for it you even look in nature you know you have uh, you take a look at black swans for example that I think there's a significant number of black swans that are gay not straight so you know you can't run around and go oh well nature you know you have to it's uh, well, what's that nonsense it's uh, Eve not Steve <laughs> it's just nonsense it is complete homophobic nonsense and it's not borne out by the truth of who we are as biological beings over time. You mentioned earlier um, beauty standards so and the fact that Love Island for example has a very um, specific type of person who features on it and there's not too much variation outside of that. I was wondering um, you know through history and across different cultures how consistent have beauty standards been? I mean, I'm sure there's been great variety, but would, say, a Victorian person or a medieval person look at the people on Love Island and think they're attractive, or would they think, oh, goodness, there's some sort of, <laughs> what is this abomination? <laughs> I, think, I think they'd be shocked, but then we'd be shocked by medieval beauty standards. And so I think that there's, um, it's not even a, a so much vastly in, history. I mean, if you take a look in the 1920s, if you brought someone, you know, who had come of age in the 1920s to look at things now, 100 years later, I think they would also be incredibly surprised because, you know, at that time, um, you're looking at a very athletic uh, female form, you know, straight up and down to, to, to hold those dresses uh, correctly and say the flapper style. And uh, you've got you know, those sorts of things that have, like, um, one thing I found ridiculous, like, in med in medieval times, and again, we come back to wealth, but size really matters, and many, many aspects of beauty, and uh, they used to wear these things, coulons, um, uh, named uh, Krakos for after uh, the city in Poland, and so they would be these incredibly long, elongated shoes with points at the end for men and some of them were so long that you'd have to tie them to your leg with a uh, string to avoid tripping over or support them with whalebone in order to be able to walk on them and uh, they instigated laws again this is where it always comes down to status and class and wealth whereby you were allowed six inches if you're a commoner and up to 12 if you're nobility. So, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, we're not the first people to have had ridiculous fashions and tastes. And, um, you know, like the, the, the thing that worries me most is, uh, I suppose, uh, colorism, because that's something that's been around uh, quite a lot and you know so there were times within British history where they wanted women's faces to be so translucent and so pale that you would draw in like a blue vein on the on the forehead like with the you know a little bit of uh, uh, powder makeup of in, in order to to look as if your skin was so translucent and I think that that colorism is something that I mean you know, there's straight up racism, but there's also this notion that tanned tanned people were were more uh, workers and peasants and and you know sort of 
hard-skinned laborers and therefore in order to be a, a beautiful lady you had to always be under a parasol or in the out of the sun and you had to always have this real paleness about you and um I, I quite like the fact that Love Island, everyone's looking for the time. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, there, there's been a lot of, there has been a, a real race issue there because it is deeply problematic to have a bunch of white ladies sitting around discussing the size of a black man's <gasps> It just is. It's problematic. I don't, it, but, but then, you know, you've got to bear in mind that I'm sure there are scholars and there are people doing PhD on Love Island and all its uh, intricacies somewhere. Um, but in terms of sort of entertainment, props to them for have, you know for including including black people, including people of color. Okay, great. That's you know that's something to be said. But again, you're absolutely right that it's it's going to be someone very slim. It's going to be someone who looks a certain way. The women have long hair. There's, you know, there, there is this real sort of, that this is attractive. And I do worry that, uh, you know, what about the children? <laughs> it always comes back to that old Whitney Houston song. But, you know, I do worry that, that little girls and will watch that. And I think last night there was somebody saying, you know, oh, I quite like it when, you know, men put me in my place. <laughs> You're just sort of like, love, please. <laughs> So it, on the one hand, it's harmless entertainment. On the other hand, it is something that's being piped into our homes on a daily basis. And so does everything need to become, you know, so self-examining that it isn't a, a little bit of harmless fun? Well, because you kind of sort of, you know, started to point out the problematic areas as well of Love Island and I suppose kind of also the challenges of online dating and I'm sure every period kind of comes with its sort of set of issues or you know problematic areas but I was just kind of wondering whether you thought there were any sort of tips or tricks in in terms of dating that young people young women men today could benefit from knowing about. I think one should always uh, uh, take things slow and check out whether someone's a rake before you get mugged off so there is this thing whereby the slower you go, um, the, the more you get to know people. And I think the, the really important thing, which I don't think the girls do enough on Love Island, uh, and I mean, the guys do, is to ask yourself how you feel in a relationship rather than whether the other person likes you or not. So there's an awful lot of sort of spending time thinking, oh my God, he's so sweet. He did this for me. He must really like me. It's like, press pause on that and have a think, do I like him? Like, are we compatible? Do we, are there things that we just do not agree on? And I mean, to be, to be fair to, <laughs> to the whole of Idol project, I did watch a few of the like unseen bits, you know, as extras. And so they do, you know, they have ridiculous, uh, I don't think they allow drugs in the villa, but practically stoner conversations about, you know, would you rather this or that or the other. So, uh, you know, the, the, there's clearly more to it than just what we see on the, in the evening edits, where it's all just about, you know, who's getting off with who and who's left who and will X or Y be faithful to one another. So I, I do feel that, uh, one of the real uh, advantages would be to take things slow. And in the past, people used to take things slow. Uh, women would take things slow to, 
ensure that their reputations weren't uh, destroyed in the marriage market, you know. And uh, men, I mean, to some degree, men were the same because once they had that reputation, mothers and chaperones were really, you know, keeping an eye out for them and making sure they weren't about to sort of carry off girls because there was an awful lot of running off to Gretna. Even, I mean, if you were rich enough, you were getting kidnapped. You know, there was a lot of heiress kidnapping um, going on. So in essence, um, I think that kind of keeping your powder dry and figuring out what you want before you stick your tongue down someone's throat is always a good idea. I was just wondering, I was gonna ask Matt whether he'd sort of planned to kidnap any, any women in his life recently. <laughs> Not, not recently, not ever, in fact. Um, <laughs> um, Tanya, I was going to ask you, in a somewhat similar vein, I suppose, you've, you've, you've studied the, the history of, of this. Is there any, did anything stand out? Like, were there any courtship customs or rituals that, to your mind, you know, you'd like to see return to the 21st century that you think were, were valuable or endearing in some way? I, I love, um, I think to some degree we do still do it. Um, but I like the idea of love tokens. I think that that sort of, it, there used to be this real tradition of men making things with their hands, you know, whittling, whittling a love spoon for you in, say, Wales, or making, you know, sort of a beautiful paper sampler or something, or writing poetry. And I remember my, my, my best friend is a guy, and a, a straight guy, and when we were single at around the same time. So we were kind of each other's wing people and we would, you know, sort of check out. And I used to always say to him, look, like if he'd had a row with, with someone he was dating, look, write her a letter, tell her how you feel. Nobody does it anymore, you know, so a text just wouldn't do it. And he's like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> like, I am not a Jane Austen hero. I'm not gonna write her a freaking letter. So. So this is sort of, you know, I, I do wish that that would come back, that notion of, of time, because I think that the reason anyone might find it something sweet is one, you've been thought of, and two, someone's taken the time, you know, that, because what are we really, really devoid of at the minute? It's, it's generally time. It's sort of, you know, you, you go to work, you have to do your laundry, you have to cook your dinner, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and... And then in terms of all of those commitments, it's much easier to send a little, you know, uh, kissy face emoji than it is to actually think, oh, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to whittle a spoon for three hours. <laughs> so I wish that those sorts of things would come back. And, you know, I mean, we saw in, in Love Island how ungraciously Toby presented coffees to Chloe when he was going out with her. You know, it's like, that's the last one I'm making. <laughs> sort of, that's not, you know, I, I, would, I would love a little bit more care. And, and both sides, you know, I mean, women used to give uh, men little locks of hair and things sort of made into, you know, pretty little things that they would carry close to their hearts as they were away and on business and things. So um, I imagine, you know, everyone of, of any gender would enjoy a love token from, you know, met from the heart. I was actually going to mention that when you said the love tokens about the coffees that they sort of bring each other in the morning. And I just wondered if that is a sort of a valid enough substitute for a love <laughs> hair 
or something else? <laughs> oh, well, I, I do. I mean, one of the things I love about Djibouti is that Jake, when he did the magnetic, like, bracelet things, that was so cute. And it was really cute. And, you know, there was a lot of awing over because A, had thought about it. He thought, you know what, if I find someone that I really want to connect with, then I'm going to give her this. So he would pre planned it and brought it into the villa and then the fact that you know he had kind of pre fairly well I don't know if it was that early but fairly early decided to pop the question the really great thing which I felt was almost like like an Indian we get family and friends involved in our romance because it creates a community bond in a way that that just uh, individuals don't so you know sort of it, there is an awful lot of interference it's annoying but but also it means that uh you know family and friends feel like they're part they're invested in the romance and they're invested in the relationship and so i think it which is incredibly helpful so i love the fact that jake got everybody involved in the whole you know will you be my girlfriend <laughs> conversation which was really sweet you mentioned um you mentioned toby a minute ago now toby He's something of a sort of Lothario, right? Um, a bit of a heartbreaker, at least so far in this a season. A rake, a rake. Uh, a rake, very much so. And um, I was thinking sort of off the back of that, when it came to promiscuity um, in the past, was there a double standard? How acceptable was it both for men and women? Because, you know, I th I'm thinking of the Victorians here. Obviously, outwardly, civilised society said was very repressed about sexuality. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, everyone had syphilis because they were sleeping with prostitutes all the time. So could you expand on that? How about promiscuity through the ages? How our, how our attitudes towards that have changed? Any, any historical um, examples you might, might be able to elaborate on? Um, well, I mean, the thing is, uh, promiscuity, it's a funny old game, because because we're having quite a light conversation, I'm kind of loath to give you too many examples, because uh, they just, they turn, they go dark so fast, they go so, so, so awful. Um, but yes, no, absolutely. I mean, there, there was a brilliant autobiography written about Mrs. Beaton. So, you know, so she was like, I don't know, she was sort of like Nigella and Mary Berry all rolled into one and all, you know, sort of, and uh, Marie Kondo as well. So she kind of gave, she wrote this incredible book, which was all about how to manage your servants and how to deal with, you know, uh, not, not allow your servants to have gentlemen callers, that sort of thing. And, and also how to cook awful food. I mean, terrible recipes in there. And uh, so, so what it turned out was this the biography and, and, Miss Beeson, uh, Isabella Beeson, probably died of syphilis due to her husband visiting prostitutes when they were right uh, at the time they were engaged, I think it was, and they hadn't yet, they were living uh, separately and things, and that he gave that to her and that's how she died uh, much younger than expected. And so, you know, in terms of sexual health, women were really reliant on men who were, uh, you know, were visiting prostitutes might have been promiscuous there was much more opportunity for men to um you know to have sex out of their marriages than there was women because there was a, a lot of codified ways of behaving you know there wasn't very much by way of like if you were a single uh, woman uh, you were expected to not just um 
have virtue but should be shown to have virtue so you would have your chaperone and you would ensure that um your you, you know your parents or whoever your guardian was would ensure that you you uh, adhered to those rules and having said that it takes two to tango so there obviously there were affairs happening because it's not you know it wasn't just a matter of men visiting prostitutes there were women who were you know who there wouldn't have been so much written about um, not having gentlemen callers if they weren't having gentlemen callers. So, so there is this sort of um, feeling that there was something going on, but it wasn't as, uh, as straight up on the uh, surface of things as you would expect. Um, we, you know, we mentioned um, heiress kidnappings, but actually, like one of the things that maybe um, was a lot freer is you're, when you're talking about uh, society and the way it's, it, you know, the different classes and uh, the different areas, uh, to be of a not nobility and to be living rurally was often a, a great deal um, better for you if you were wanting to, you know, sort of explore and but because you're your world would take you into glens and through forests and things and um and there was this uh you know there were certain uh festivals like say the may festival and things that for the fertility of the land you'd often have people turning a blind eye to things that were maybe not so done in the cities and not so done in other more constricted areas so I think everybody has always, there's always been promiscuity. It's how far we legislate against it or hide it. Or I know friends of mine, I, I know gay friends of mine who live in really repressive Islamic countries and they get hook up all the time. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility to do that. It's just that you are forced to be careful or underground because women and uh, gay people are, were horrifically punished if they were caught. I think though what I found interesting what you're saying about in the sense of the ball being in the court of the husbands or the partners I mean maybe women were sort of being more promiscuous than people were aware of but it's just also just drawing it back to the current season of Love Island and you know Casa Moore's come back and what has really struck me in this season um, is just kind of all the women have now, they're kind of worrying, like they're in the same boat. They've got all these men coming, but they're the ones who are really worrying about, is he gonna be loyal to me? And to be honest, the whole series is just seeing that very stereotypical trope of the man being in charge and the woman trying to sort of guard her corner. And I just sort of wondered, you know, is that just a trope that's just kind of been re-emerging again and again, or is that a relatively new thing? I mean, the thing is, uh, I hate to keep banging on about this, but it is down to wealth. Like the way that things used to, to happen and the way that things would connect is based around uh, hereditary laws in this country. So uh, it sounds ridiculous to be saying that in reference to Love Island, but somebody was suddenly, there was a favoured mistress who was having children. Your husband's wealth is suddenly being distributed amongst other uh, households and 
because all your wealth becomes your husband's at that stage of marriage, you are bound to him for, you know, there's nothing you can do apart from maybe, maybe finding an incredibly wealthy lover that, you know, you risk shame and ostracization from society by just sort of running off with him. But in essence, a lot of women were very, very trapped. So there's this sort of thing whereby, and this is why I say on the one hand it's really light and on the other hand it's really kind of insidious and a bit worrying, is that we internalise those feelings generationally almost of, you know, oh well the woman must keep the home and look after her man and keep her man and the man is, you know, the hunter and he goes out and his head might be turned and do you know, and it's such a nonsense because, but by the same token, like, shouldn't the guys be worried that the women's heads are going to turn? Why wouldn't they? Like, we, we now, we're, we're all, I mean, okay, gender pay differences aside, we all earn our own money, we all buy our own clothes, we all do our own stuff. So, so surely it needs to be what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? So you've got to um, have some degree of equality, which I don't think Love Island promotes in any way, shape or form, because I don't think that simply, um, like the most amount of equality it promotes is if a woman is as muggy as a bloke, right? So if, if she's as cheating on him or leaving him or things, then, then that sort of creates a degree of equality. But I think certainly looking online, like, I think a woman is punished a lot more than a man. So when, if a woman is particularly um, unlikable as a character, because we're not, we, we, we don't, as a society, we don't forgive unlikable women as much as we do unlikable men. So we kind of go, oh, he's such a player. He says, and you know, roll our eyes, but expect it. So kind of, it, it re reiterates that, well, they're gonna be men like that out there. But with women, it's sort of, we punish women a lot more for not adhering to that kind of submissive, likeable, likes women, it behaves well, all of that sort of thing. Although the one, the one thing that does pop to mind is in Shakespearean times of the cuckoldry kind of traditions of sort of when the man had been cheated on by his wife, obviously being sort of carried into the village and made a mockery of and a... I think that's probably one one thing that uh, <laughs> would be quite amusing to see. I don't know what you think about that, but <laughs> hey, I'm married. I'm saying let's just not cheat, <laughs> if, unless you're in an open, consensually open relationship, and that's where you're going down. Let's, you know, if you've agreed to be monogamous, let's just not cheat, and then nobody has to be paraded through the town. They call the cuckold, right? <laughs> why can't we all just love one another okay how how's this if you could if you could devise a love island villa the ultimate love island villa with anyone throughout history you can think of to go into that villa can you have you got any ideas of what oh, sort of goodness. sort of outrageous characters you might like to see in the uh, Ooh, ultimate villa okay <laughs> Well, I think I definitely have Anne Boleyn in there because I felt she was a real political player. So she would sort of, 
she'd figure out what was going on and who was that I would not have Henry VIII there. I mean, come on, there's muggy and then there's next level things, right? Um, I would for him, wouldn't they? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> they need about four beds at least. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's, he's not in my good But Mind you, if you look historically, the most interesting characters are really, real reprobates, like really appalling. I mean, even if you, if the, the, you know, the name that everyone thinks of when they think of, oh, a lover is Casanova, he was an appalling man. <laughs> I mean, terrible. Like he had to leave Venice because he, the, a, a merchant pranked him, right? Um, and it was something innocuous kind of prank where he he um, had uh, he was walking on a bridge and the guy had sawed halfway sawed through a plank so he'd fall in the mud and things. His response was to dig up the arm from a corpse and then convince the man that the room he was sleeping in was haunted and then bring and, and touch him with the corpse's arm. The guy ended up having like some kind of episode, heart attack, stroke, whatever. And he never recovered from it, like ever. So that's why Casanova had to run away from Venice. <laughs> like you have people who are pranksters in a house together. Let's not put Casanova in there <laughs> because he just takes things too far. And then um, I'd like have- Like finger in your coffee in the morning, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> It's just some blood. Ha ha ha. No, jolly. Um, I definitely have, you know, if you're talking about reputedly well endowed, then Rasputin was supposed to be quite, quite a goer. Um, and uh, so we said, what, Anne Boleyn, Rasputin, uh, the equivalent of Gibberty would probably be Queen Victoria and Albert, because, you know, we're like hearts forever. <laughs> And uh, for my for myself, just because I'd like to, I would watch hours of the guy. Is um, the Russian poet Mayakovsky? He was a hottie, but he also wrote in his poems things like "I will not send wild telegrams at two a.m." and things. And you kind of think, okay, so somebody who's got that level of you know obsessive and annoying stuff toxic masculinity possibly as well <laughs> so you fit in perfectly in a love island um and then and yeah and i'd mix up you know things and uh, shah jahan who created the beautiful taj mahal so you have to have a few people who are like you know really about love and some who are a little bit about messing stuff up so i'd like you know i think i think that would be entertaining to watch I'm not sure anyone would get out of there alive. It would probably turn into some kind of horror film. <laughs> but nonetheless, it could be fun. It could be fun. Who would you have? Have you guys thought about it at all? Well, we actually did devise a list, didn't we, before, Matt? We, we, we actually had mentioned Rasputin because we knew about sort of rumours about his sort of appendage. And uh, not that that's a good reason. You know, as you were saying, it's very problematic, some of the conversations around that. <laughs> So uh, maybe better not, uh, Matt. It's, no, it's, it's interesting <laughs> you came up with uh, a few of the names we chose. So Rasputin, uh, we talked about, I think we went for Henry VIII over Anne Boleyn, but, you know, similar vein. Casanova, we also mentioned. Um, a few others we had, 
uh, Genghis Khan. KFK <laughs> uh, <laughs> as well. You've got to think about this sort of. Yeah, yeah. Imagine Genghis Khan. He'd be like, <laughs> all the other blokes would be slaughtered and he'd be running, <laughs> hurrying, and be like, and Casa Amore is mine too. Today we invade. <laughs> well, you know, at least he'd come out with a 50k, you know, eliminate all opponents. Uh, Cleopatra as well, Lord Byron. Uh, I heard that Cleopatra wasn't that attractive, actually. Like, not, not like, physically so. She just had loads and loads of charm. So, you know, just sort of like, when, when you're looking at the casting directors, they might have passed over Cleopatra on the basis of that. So, well, yeah. You would get good, I think, kudos for all her sort of gold and outfits and maybe her eyeliner. I feel like she might actually even fit in with the, the current sort of beauty standards uh, of the villa. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, like archaeological evidence of coins and things shows her to be um, a, a, a curly haired, red head apparently. <laughs> so, and not, not, didn't do the eye makeup that we think of. So, so the Liz Taylor version is not historically accurate. However, maybe, maybe a little bit of a, mix up but you're absolutely right yeah that would that would be certainly fun things and who was who was the one you just mentioned before the there was Cleopatra and Lord Byron oh yeah Lord Byron that would that would be very entertaining to watch for sure <laughs> although he's sort of having it off with uh, his half sister I remember reading a book about that so I think he would definitely uh, leave many many of the the girls in tears um, so yeah. But I think about the ladies and their, their feelings too. <laughs> I was thinking of more recent history, but I definitely like to see Freddie Mercury in there too. Yeah. Personal person, I've always had a bit of a crush there, but. Yeah, I feel that way about Muhammad Ali. Like he had, like, he could really say some things, couldn't he? And so he knew, I think it, the, the flirting, the lines alone, with the one-liners alone and the comebacks <laughs> would be amazing. So yeah, people witty and uh, James Dean. Yeah, Jimmy Dean, way back. So. One, of, one of the pank casts as well. That, that could be quite a funny twist oh, to sort of oh, make a, a little sort of subsection of women be like, you don't need these men. You know, sometimes I feel like they just need that voice in there. It's definitely lacking at the moment. That's you awesome. say he's muggy? They're all muggy! <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be brilliant. Uh, yeah, no, I think we, we need to become like time traveling casting directors for Love Island. I'll, uh, I'll get in touch with uh, ITV2 and I'll, uh, I'll let you know what they, what they come back Genius ideas. <laughs> Wonderful. So hopefully you've all gleaned something, uh, some sort of dating advice that might be useful to take forward uh, into your future lives. If you have any other inspirational anecdotes from the past, we'd love to hear about it. And perhaps also some suggestions of what your greatest villa of all time might have looked like. Matt, what do you think that you've taken away from our conversation? I think I need to get myself a pair of extra long whalebone medieval shoes for one. And otherwise, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to see modern, such a modern phenomenon like Love Island in this wider context. And we, we can't wait to, to hear what everyone else thinks about this. Um, 
So, yeah, thank you again to our wonderful best guest, Tanya O'Donnell. And um, thank you. I'm Matthew Jarvis. And I'm Stephanie Sableton. And this is Southwest Londoner Podcast. Londoner Podcast. <laughs>